Our scripture text this morning is Luke 9, Luke 9, verses 37 to 51. And it can be found on page 1103 of your Pew Bibles. Here we come not to the end of the Gospel of Luke, but to our pause in the series. As I said before, we will pause at this time and pick up in the following weeks the Book of Lamentations. Verse 51, serving as that transition in Jesus' ministry to Jerusalem. Before we read these verses, let's ask for God's blessing. Lord God in heaven, we pray that you would give to us a deep understanding as well as a deep, deep reverence for what we do here. Jesus speaks words to his disciples, and we are those who need to hear them as well. As we read your word, this is nothing less than the voice of God the Father in heaven being spoken in our midst right now. And so, Lord, we pray that we would come before you with reverence and awe, but as well an anticipation and an excitement to hear the voice of God in our midst, to be able to change our life accordingly, to be able to see the, the glory of our Savior and to feast on him in and through the eyes of faith. This is our prayer, and it's prayed that your name would be magnified in our life. We ask this in your name. Amen. Luke 9, beginning in verse 37. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. While they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest, But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. 
When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Thus ends the reading of God's word. There's nothing quite so devastating, quite so frustrating for a teacher than to teach, to pour out his heart, to explain and present wisdom to his students, and to have the students not receive it, to have the students not learn the lesson for them to fail, to comprehend, or fail to change. It's very disheartening, disheartening for a teacher. It's very disheartening to our Lord and Savior, as you see in this text, instruction to failing disciples, instruction to generations that will not accept and will not get it. And we see a moment of all true candor and honesty from Jesus' own heart as he, he expresses, how long will I be with this faithless and twisted generation, this generation that does not understand Jesus is doing marvelous work. He's doing kingdom work. He's, he's presenting and preaching the kingdom to his disciples. He is explaining to them in all clarity what must happen, and they continue not to get it. They continue not to understand, and the time is approaching. It's near when Jesus will be taken up, and so the time is of the essence. We could say they must understand, they must learn. The disciples serve in these texts a mirror for ourselves, that we would see their error as well, that we would be instructed with Jesus' words to them, which come through those very disciples and their associates to us through God's word, where Jesus, where God still speaks to us as people, where we still hear ringing in the room, get this in your heads, what the Son of Man must do and what the kingdom means and what's required. That's what we see in these seemingly unconnected stories. There's four of them, as we read through the text, all very brief, all, all dealing with similar things and yet don't seem to present one coherent point on an initial reading. In the first story, we see that the kingdom is not what we or the disciples would expect. The first story is of the boy and the unclean spirit and the point there is the lack of faith of the generation, the, the showing that the kingdom is, that to be entered into the kingdom, the kingdom requires faith. As Jesus laments, really, the faithlessness of those around him. In the second story, Jesus foretells his death and shows that we fail and the disciples fail to see the way of the king and thus the way of the kingdom. They fail to see this point that suffering precedes glory as he's been trying to teach them already. And he's telling them very clearly that they must understand this. And then the third story is an argument amongst the disciples about who is the greatest. And Jesus shows them that kingdom greatness is not to value yourself as worthwhile, but to value yourself as no account, as undeserving, and as of least. Kingdom greatness is humility. Kingdom greatness is a race to the bottom, not a race to the top. And then in the fourth story, it shows that kingdom work, kingdom work is not done to protect one's own exclusivity, one's own standing. 
That rather those who work in the name of the Lord are those to be worked alongside of. That it's not a, it's not a competition to try to keep others out of this work so that we or that the disciples in this text could be exclusive in their standing with Christ and the work of God through them to retain the greatness of their standing. See, all of this relates to the, the kingdom of God. We could title this whole section, as one commentator did, The Disciples' Failure and Jesus' Instruction. It's really what's going on in each one of these cases. It's the disciples' failure and it's Jesus' instruction. And then we see what connects all these stories together, which is our theme this morning. Those greatest in the kingdom are the faith-filled least. Those greatest in the kingdom are the faith-filled least. And we'll see what that faith must encompass, what kind of faith that must be, and what it means to be least, and that is to be great in the kingdom. We're going to look at that today under four points. The first, understanding the kingdom's need for faith. Understanding the kingdom's need for faith. Second, understanding the king's mission. Understanding the king's mission. Third, understanding kingdom greatness. Understanding kingdom greatness, and finally, understanding kingdom service. So first, understanding the kingdom's need for faith. This is that story of exorcism that Jesus performs for this father and son. Today, we're not going to look in in depth at the details of the exorcism itself. We've gone through exorcism accounts, and we've dealt with that there. Rather, what I want to do is connect all these stories and see what they're trying to teach us. Yet the text begins that Jesus descends from the Mount of Glory to this plain of devastation. Having just spoke to Moses and Elijah, having been transfigured in front of the disciples, this glorious moment marred perhaps by the disciples' lack of understanding, even a rebuke that comes to them from the Father's own voice, yet a glorious occasion, speaking of his exodus on a mountaintop, he descends to the plain and it's all broken. No one gets it still. No one seems closer to understanding, and the time for his departure continues to draw near. Rather, what he comes down to is chaos, to Satan's work, to to a demonic experience, to a failure of his own disciples. This is how he descends to this plane of devastation. And this father begs him to heal his son, and you can sense the father's own need The father's sorrow in what's going on for this his only son, as Luke has continued to point out in miracle, miraculous events, that this this was the only daughter, or this was the only son, to highlight what's going on. And this boy is possessed by a spirit who wants nothing but to destroy him. And the father gives this particular detail, I beg your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Which immediately brings this statement to the Lord's lips, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? What is Jesus' meaning there? It it seems perhaps out of place. It seems to be a statement of only frustration, and I think we could call it certainly righteous frustration if you want to use that term. Obviously, Jesus does not sin. But there is, in in that way, a frustration, a a being at wit's end to that degree. But who's he addressing? Who's who's he actually saying this to? Is it the Father? 
I think that's rather narrow and not in keeping with what we've seen from Jesus and his miracles before this to say he's directing it only at the Father. Is it only at the disciples? I think that's too narrow as well. Jesus is addressing in his very words the generation itself. And what does he highlight? Twistedness and faithlessness, a lack of faith. A twistedness that doesn't understand him or his mission, that doesn't understand the kingdom, and that's even corrupted and broken with everything he sees around him, but as well, that lack of something, that lack of faith. They are a faithless generation, which means that the kingdom requires faith, a faith that so many lack. Now, the disciples are clearly front and center here, They don't escape being lumped in with this generation. And and why can we say that? What from the text would give us that indication? Well, it was the Father's words. Your disciples were unable to drive out this demon. Remember earlier, back to, to previous messages and texts, Jesus had given the disciples authority over all of these. He had given them authority and power, his own derived authority to to drive out demons, and they didn't, and they couldn't. And so it's put right next to this statement, and so clearly the disciples are a part of it. The other Gospels bring this into to clear focus as well. Luke doesn't mention it, but Mark 9, which records the same event, the disciples ask in their confusion, and they say to Jesus, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus said, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Presumably then, the disciples either did not pray at all, trusting in their own authority and power, or that the prayers they offered were prayers without sincere belief or without faith. And they just prayed it. Matthew makes this all the more clear. Matthew 17.20, again in the same account, the disciples ask why they couldn't drive it out. And Jesus says, because of your little faith. For truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to here, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. You see, the other Gospels make clear what Luke isn't actually trying to to really highlight in its fullness, and that is the disciples' lack of faith. You see, what Luke does is he includes that in the whole midst of all those there, the generation that they do not see the answer. Jesus' intent is to characterize all those around him as faithless and twisted. That doesn't mean that there are none who have any faith. The disciples do. Even this father has an element, an amount of faith coming to Jesus to ask that his son would be healed. So there's faith present, but it's, it's not a faith that truly grasps. It's not a faith that truly comprehends the mission or the kingdom. So what Jesus is doing here in saying such a thing is highlighting the gulf between him and them. He truly stands alone. Here's the generation, here's his disciples, here's all on this side, and here's Jesus standing there, and he's by himself. He alone is the faithful man. He alone is the one who is bringing about healing and and the gospel and promises of the Lord, but no one else is really with him in it. No one else gets it. He stands alone, and this generation needs to place their faith in him. And there's that call. 
Stop waiting. You see Jesus' frustration. Has it not been long enough? How long? How much longer will I have to remain with you for you to see the truth and to know it? That's a call that God's Word gives to all of us here, and especially for those who would doubt, especially those who would put up their own unbelief, their own faithlessness, and not accept that question, how long will you hear and not see? How long will you be presented with the gospel and have hard hearts? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. That's, that's expressed in what Jesus' even frustration is. Don't you see? Don't you know? But Luke does something else, so this we see understanding the, the kingdom's need for faith, but he does something else too. He highlights the astonishment and marveling of the people and what immediately follows. And we see this in understanding the king's mission. Understanding the king's mission. Jesus' popularity is unmistakable. It's at its zenith, it seems. Everyone's marveling at it. They've done this before, but you see it very clearly in the text in verse 43. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. You see the connection there. They clearly see him as a worker of the majesty of God. They see him as one that God has sent. They're marveling. They're astonished. And Jesus takes this moment, this moment when everything's going well. This is smooth sailing He is performing miracle after miracle. The crowds keep gathering and marveling. And what does he do? He takes his disciples to the side and he sees they don't get it. And he very strongly tells them, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. He pulls them aside and he says, all this is going to come crashing down. And you're going to crash and burn as well because if you don't get this, If you don't get the fact that it's not about the glory and it's not about this earthly kingdom, it's not about your greatness, it's not about the marveling of the people. He's he's saying, I've already told you that the Son of Man will be rejected by his people, betrayed and killed. You see, the, the orientation that the disciples have is wrong. We see that through Jesus' rebuke, through Jesus' words there. Let this sink in. Understand this. Jesus got it. The the people and all their marveling and all their wonder didn't mean anything because they didn't get it. If it doesn't result in faith, what does marveling at God's works really do? What does it really mean? If you don't see that, then it doesn't do anything for you. Then you will be rejected. You won't be part of the kingdom because it's not all about that glory. Luke has been showing this so clearly in the past texts and in these today. Jesus' actions and his ministry up to this point has met the expectations of the disciples, has met the expectations of the crowds. He's healed, he's resurrected, he's multiplied food, he's driven out demons, the kingdom has been advanced. And at the very time the disciples think the kingdom is really gaining steam, Jesus warns them that this isn't going to keep up And because your faith is misunderstood, what will you do when this happens? What will you do when all this comes crashing down? That's a good question for us to ask ourselves. What do we do when our expectation of the kingdom and what it's supposed to look like or the work of the church comes crashing down? 
We make room for success. We understand blessedness and happiness, and we say that that's that's working. That's the kingdom at its best. Do we make room for betrayal and suffering? Do we make room for rejection as Jesus did, that the way of the kingdom, that the kingdom comes first through suffering and not through glory? That there's cross-bearing, as he said earlier in the text, before there is that glory, this is the same lesson. You see how important and why we keep hitting it is because we need to grasp this as well. Denying self, bearing cross, this is the way of the kingdom. And let these words sink in. Their idea of the king's mission wasn't right. They got the identity, they got the mission wrong, they got the king's purpose wrong. And so, Jesus tells them again what will happen to him. And you see this urgency. Jesus is trying to pound it into their thick heads. And why? Why is the urgency ramping up? Look at verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. The journey is at hand. The days are drawing near. They better get it. All that Jesus is doing here is preparing them for this very purpose. He's trying to prepare them to see their world turned upside down. And, and, and think of it. If, if they had grasped this, their world would not have turned upside down. If they would have seen this, they would have known what was coming, and and what seemed to be the death of all their hopes would actually have been the life of them, the birth of them. And yet, in God's plan, it wasn't for them to know. They didn't get it. In fact, the Lord even had ordained that they would not. They would not understand it yet. And it's not because the disciples don't understand what Jesus is saying. They do. It's not as if they can't comprehend this truth. In the parallel account in Matthew 17.23, in response to Jesus' words, it says that the disciples were distressed. They were distressed. In other words, they got the message, and it caused great distress among them. So it's not that they can't, can't comprehend what Jesus is saying. It's that it doesn't fit. It doesn't make sense. It's not their expectation. In fact, they couldn't grasp it. They were afraid to ask about it, the text says. And even that their confusion was in part because it was concealed from them. Wonder how much of it was because that they were afraid to ask because they didn't like this talk. They were afraid to to probe in because this isn't what they wanted to hear. This isn't the kingdom they wanted. And again, for us, when the kingdom that's coming isn't the one that we want, it's not the one that's fulfilling our expectations, what do we do? And and Jesus' words would tell us, submit to what what you're being taught, to what the teacher's bringing, his instruction, to what's being revealed. Suffering comes first, then glory Don't miss the king's purpose, because if you do, you will miss your purpose. i got to say that again so that Jesus' words sink in. Don't miss the king's purpose, because if you do, you will miss your purpose. Jesus' purpose was the kingdom. His purpose 
was to deny himself. His purpose was to be least, to be humble, to be used and abused for the sake of others. What is your purpose? What is our purpose? Is it to be the greatest or the least? Is our purpose on this earth to have an easy life? Or to have kingdom service? See how phrasing it that way puts this lesson in its, its right context. And maybe now we can sympathize with the disciples. We don't want to hear that. And even when Jesus clearly and, and faithfully shows that this is the expectation, at least in part, for his followers, are we the ones who say, no, I'd rather not take that kingdom. I'd rather not be a part of that work. You see, this is all what Luke 9 has been showing. Don't miss the king's purpose, because if you do, you will miss your purpose. If we expect only a kingdom of glory, only a kingdom of greatness, only ease of life, what do we do when the ease of life is taken away in kingdom service? Is there, is there room in our minds for us to say, even this trial is in keeping with the kingdom, is in keeping with my walk for the Lord, is in keeping with me denying these things, awaiting them later, dying to self now to be least in the kingdom to serve the Lord is there room in our minds is there room in our life for that an acceptance and allowance for that to take place or is it really the kingdom is a pathway to the ease of life to our to our status as a rising star to our greatness or just to the life that we want and we'll gladly hook ourselves to that kingdom and to that Messiah we must know the true cost. And that shows us in our third point, understanding kingdom greatness. In verses 46 to 48, understanding kingdom greatness. The disciples begin to argue about which of them was the greatest. This placement in the text is meant to just be dripping with irony here. Meant to show how foolish man is. Not just the disciples, but the heart of man even the heart of those who follow Jesus, those who are his closest followers, let's argue about who's the greatest. Luke has placed this in a context to highlight how ridiculous this is. They've been failing left and right. He's just told us about the, the transfiguration account and Peter, James, and John, and they didn't really get it. And then Jesus comes down and the remaining disciples couldn't drive out a demon. They failed there and Jesus had to clean up their mess. And then he takes them aside and he has to rebuke them and, and basically tell them, you thick-headed students, would you not understand? Get this. And then, what's the next story? Who of us is the greatest? Let's argue about that. What is kingdom greatness? Tripping with irony here. Jesus knows their argument. It's not as if they're standing right in front of him. They show some sense there. Don't we show that sense as well? Let's not, let's not openly argue about who's the greatest. Let's just keep it in our minds or let's just talk behind others' backs. Whether this person should, should be thought of as better than us or given that position or that honor when we're much better. We're much more equipped. We're much more humble than that person. 
arguing about kingdom greatness. We're experts at it, though we may not realize it. Jockeying for position all the time in our own minds, every time we weigh ourselves against others. And so Jesus, knowing their thoughts, puts a young child before them. And he says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives receives him who sent me. For he who is least among among you all is the one who is great. Now Jesus doesn't say this to try to give some romantic or exalted position to the innocence of a child or something like that. That's not what he's intending to do. He's trying to show how it must be received, how the kingdom must be received, the manner in which it is received, and it's received by one who is least, as one who has nothing to offer. One commentator gave a helpful quote to explain this. He says, Jesus didn't have a romanticized notion about the qualities of children. He wasn't setting up the child as a model for them to imitate. Children had no power, no status, and no rights and they were regarded as insignificant and disposable. Children had no power, no status, no rights. They were insignificant. They weren't, by anyone's definition, the great in the kingdom. And what Jesus is saying is putting before them one such as that. What is he meaning? One so least, so unworthy, one who has nothing to offer, that is how one receives the kingdom. One in, in whose mind, one who's not even having the argument about who's greatest, because no one would say they're greatest. They are the least. That is the mind of a saint. Nothing to offer. He continues that they were regarded in this way as small, weak, and dependent. A child is the perfect illustration of those who are the most responsive to God's grace. Because those who swagger in their vain glory and wish to be crowned the greatest resist grace. And isn't that the truth? Those who think that they have the potential to be great, the Peter and James and Johns of the world who, who were the closest to Jesus, we must be something special. You're nothing to me. Matthew, come on, you're not like me, Peter. Something like that. Of course I'm going to be at the right hand of, the, of Jesus in the kingdom, of this glorious kingdom he's setting up. Of course I'm going to be his right-hand man. I am already. Just imagine the kind of arguments and devastating to their own mission that they, they were having. You see, this commentator says, and I think this captures the point well, there is no point at being at Jesus' side unless one is humble enough to be at a child's side. There's no point to claim or to place yourself at Jesus' side unless you're willing to be at a child's side or unless you're willing to be at the least in the kingdom's side, to identify with them, to help serve them as one of them, as one of the least. Kingdom service, kingdom greatness is not a race to the top. It's not the positions of power it's a, it's a humble faith that's expressed to the least. And, and what does Jesus say in receiving such as them? You receive me, and you receive the one who sent me. You see, that shows that you get the gospel if you place yourself as least. You know what it also shows very clearly is Jesus' own mission. This is exactly what Jesus is doing. 
He who truly is the greatest has become least. That's the whole point when he washes his disciples' feet. Taking the least honorable position, putting himself as least. Why? So that he can receive those who have nothing to offer. So that he can truly receive the least, the poor in spirit, the sinners. And so we're called to do the same Greatness in the kingdom is humility that serves. Greatness in the kingdom is strength that stoops to help. Power that protects. So different than the twisted theories of this world. Survival of the fittest, race to the top. Strength in God's kingdom is to be used not for your own benefit, but to those who are beneath you, who are least. Using power and all that you have and all that you possess for those who need it most. Not jockeying for the highest positions because it's the wrong way of doing that. How, How do you receive a greater level in Jesus' kingdom? It's by serving him with a humble heart. That's to be great. And the disciples thinking the greatest in the kingdom would not be one who would care for a child. That would be least. It wouldn't be the babysitter of the child. It wouldn't be taking this one who was insignificant in society standing and put it alongside yourself and care for such a one and raise such a one and receive such a one and bring the gospel to such a one. Just as an aside, mothers, you have a very high calling. A very high calling. I know Jesus is using this as an example, but it's, it's present there and the application is sitting right there as well. Your labors are not insignificant to raise children, to raise them in the fear of the Lord. It's never lost. Your your day's work in this regard is always very meaningful and purposeful. Just as it is for all of us who may not have our own children to raise, but who would seek the least and would seek to be the least. The disciples failed to realize that they are children in the kingdom who have no standing themselves. And that raises that convicting question, do you seek to be least? Do you seek to be least? That humble calling. Do not put yourself forward to never have a thought that you are, you're pretty special. You're pretty gifted in your own right. This is a special warning to pastors, elders, and deacons, just as it was a warning to the disciples To all those in this office, no one is exempt from this. It's a warning to congregants as well. Pastors face this. Pastors want to see who's greatest, who has the biggest congregation, whose sermons have the most views. That kind of thinking is so deadly. That kind of thinking inflates, yeah, I'm pretty special. I'm pretty useful for the kingdom. And God doesn't need anyone. God certainly doesn't need broken pastors to do it. By his grace, he's done it. And, And that's what pastors face. Elders face very similar things. You want to be well thought of and respected as an elder when when your words wouldn't be listened to, when your advice would be disdained. How dare they? I clearly am right here. That's the, the danger. And why? Why do you want to be well respected or honored? Because you want to, to receive Christ by doing the jobs that no one else would want to do? So that's the truth. The reason we would do this, the reason all of us would do this, the reason deacons would serve, the reason congregants will walk, the the way and path is this. 
because you want to receive Christ by doing the jobs no one else would want to do for those no one else would do them for. Being least in the kingdom. Do we want to be the best and greatest before God? It's not by flexing muscles and displaying intellect. It's not by having the most money. It's by being lowly. And guess what? Every one of us can do that. Every one of us can be humble before the Lord and live out our faith for others as well. And this shows our last point, a brief point, understanding kingdom service. Understanding kingdom service. You see, the disciples were supposed to understand the cross. If they would have understood the cross, if they would have understood kingdom greatness, their discussions should disappear. Their arguments of greatness should fall away. How they would treat others would be different. This would disappear from their midst to understand the king's mission. It would make all these arguments disappear, and it would make the way the disciples are treating others disappear as well. Following immediately after this, John raises this question, and they relate that they've excluded someone from ministering, or they've tried to stop him. And the contrast is stark. You see where it's placed? It's placed where this, you are supposed to be least. You are supposed to be the ones who are not desiring positions of grandeur, but to serve others, just as I am. That's Jesus' message. And then what do they say? One who is doing the work of the kingdom, we stopped him because he's not one of us. That, that's what's going on. We, we stopped this one. He's, he's not one who follows amongst us. He's not one of the twelve. He's not one of your disciples here in this group. He's doing it in your name. And demons are fleeing at, that, at his word, but we told him, stop that. They were desiring an exclusivity. They were desiring this was them. They were, they were contentious and arguing, and they were competing against each other. And they're not going to let an outsider in. He's not one of us. But what Jesus is teaching here is that kingdom work is going to be something that extends far beyond just them. And if one is laboring with them, if one is not against them, if one is serving in Jesus' name, he's not to be thwarted. You're not supposed to rise up and say, hey, you have no right to do that. You're not one of us. Their reaction is natural, but it's not correct. And even the way that verse is translated, the Greek word behind our English, we forbade, is a tense in which suggests that it was repeated, that they tried to continue to stop, to stop him from doing this. It was ongoing. The man's lack of association with the disciples caused them to stop that ministry. And Jesus' point is that someone ministering with the disciples is on their side and should be encouraged. See the, the humility there? That's what Jesus is trying to highlight. You know, we could take this into a bunch of places and think of like, well, should someone work and be in the church if they're not ordained and that sort of thing? That's not what this text is about. It's not dealing with that. Jesus' point is to show that their mission is not their exclusive right. It's not theirs. It's not what's going to be and be and make them great. It's one to be shared. It's one when you see one doing it to praise them and thank them for the service. That's being least. Because you're not worried about what that will, would mean to me. What, what would that mean to, to a pastor, a congregant, an elder, a deacon, whoever, when someone outdoes you? in kingdom service. When someone outdoes you in kingdom service, what's our reaction? The pride, the disciple heart in us like them wants to say, yeah, but let me, let me tear them down in some way. 
You know, he, he may be good at this, but let me tell you, you don't know what he does. Let me find something about him, find some way to tear him down, to, to prop myself up, find some way to, to, to say that what he's doing isn't that great. Or do we respond all internally and just in jealousy say, yeah, he's better than me. He's doing better than me. Is that, is that how we would respond? Or do you respond and say, praise the Lord that he's doing kingdom work? Why? Because I am least. It isn't about my name. It's about Jesus' name. And whoever is, is praising the name of the Lord, if Jesus' name is being magnified, if God is working through others and he does, it's to praise him. And it's not to even downplay what he's doing with that person or with you. Because it's all God who's working and it's all him to be praised. Being least in the kingdom. Don't be competitive and contentious with others. That's what this text is showing. And he's showing all of this in their journey and about to travel to Jerusalem and to face this. And Jesus will continue to teach them and purge them of these, these attitudes, these thoughts. All this shows the reason we need Jesus. The disciples failed to see the king and the kingdom, and even though they thought they got it, their view of it showed that they were not in the right heart, not in the right frame of mind. Do we hear the lesson of Luke 9? Those greatest in the kingdom are the faith-filled least. Those greatest in the kingdom are the faith-filled least. Well, what is, what's an aspect and part of being faith-filled? It's by accepting the cross. Not only Jesus on it, but the one he calls you to bear as well. That's an aspect of that faith-filled least. And in that we bring glory to God, in that we praise his name, and in that we truly magnify the greatness of God's kingdom by being the least. Understand your king, people of God. Understand your mission. Be the faith-filled least. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come before you, we are reminded of the need for humility, the need to be least, to understand that we in ourselves are nothing special, but nor do we need or want to be. It's special enough to know the love of God. Lord, we pray that we would exemplify and, and copy our Lord Jesus in being the one to serve all, to taking the position of least, even if that means suffering and death, to accept the pathway of suffering unto glory, as well as not being self-serving or self-seeking in it. Help us truly to be those who receive the least in the kingdom, to receive it as the least, that we would be those who know we bring nothing to the table, nothing special, that all you work in us for your glory is your own power doing it, is your gifting, gifting to us good works. And our failures are, are what we can take as our own. They are what we bring to the table, failures and sin. It is you who brings goodness and gifts. We praise your great name and ask, Lord, that this would characterize our hearts, this church, and your universal church. We ask this in your name. Amen.